His firm, Summit Consulting Group, has attracted clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, State Street Corporation, the Federal Reserve, Toyota, and over 500 other leading organizations. He's an inductee into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame and the concurrent recipient of the National Speaker Association Council of Peers Award of Excellence, representing the top 1% of professional speakers in the world. His prolific publishing includes over 500 articles and 60 books, including his bestseller, Million Dollar Consulting, from McGraw-Hill, now in its 25th year and 5th edition. His newest is Three Score and More, applying the assets of maturity, wisdom, and experience for personal and professional success. Success Magazine cited him in an editorial devoted to his work as a worldwide expert in executive education. The New York Post called him one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America. He is the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Press Institute, the first ever for a non-journalist. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with one of my Curvebenders, Dr. Alan Weiss. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Curvebender's book, Chapter 5, Curvebenders as Risk Mitigators. Risk is like fire. If controlled, it will help you. If uncontrolled, it will rise up and destroy you. Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the U.S., 1901 to 1909. No one can predict the future. I've long believed those who promise they can't predict outcomes are charlatans. In a future that is clouded with uncertainty, your strategic relationship portfolio becomes a lighthouse to help you see and act clearly. In this chapter, we'll focus on the strategic value of curvebenders as risk mitigators. Risk is the possibility of an undesirable event, yet it is a core characteristic in our lives. In uncertain situations, there's a chance that an individual will lose something of value, such as wealth, investment, or even their life. Thus, in an uncertain decision-making process, individuals take their subjective judgments into account about the probability of risk occurring. The risk landscape is rapidly changing its composition and impact on global leaders. Risk management as a discipline is evolving. It affects how leaders identify the early stages of the potential risk to managing the risk profile and its ultimate consequences. Risk is no longer minimized, and some leaders view risk as value creation tool 
to achieve higher performance levels, accelerate their execution, and drive greater results. The key to curve benders as potential risk mitigators is to help you continuously ask yourself, will I be able to quickly harness trends to increase my market value, expand my portfolio of relationships, and become more resilient in the face of uncertainty? Read more of this excerpt in our blog at norgroup.com slash blog. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today, I have to tell you, is actually one of my personal Curvebenders. I want to welcome Alan Weiss. Alan, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Happy to be here bending curves. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you. Alan, for those who may not know as much about you, can you briefly talk about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? How much time is this podcast? Oh, well, okay, listen. Uh, I, I started my major career as a consultant when I got fired as president of a consulting firm. Uh, I was fortunate to um, figure out how to work with Fortune 500 companies, the best and the brightest. And uh, I wrote books to uh, further my consulting career on innovation and, and performance and so forth. But then I wrote a book on consulting called Million Dollar Consulting. And 30 years later, I'm now writing the sixth edition. So when I did that, it put me into the retail market. Uh, consultants came to me and said, teach me how to consult, teach me how to market. And so I moved over the course of a decade from the wholesale market to the retail market. And today I've written more books on consulting than anyone in history. Uh, Million Dollar Consulting is probably the most you know well-sold, well-read consulting book ever. I specialize in helping entrepreneurs, professional services providers globally build better lives. And, and that's what I do today. So you, one of the things I've learned from you is that wealth is really discretionary time. And you've Correct. always been very protective of that and your family and your personal time. What are you seeing with this global pandemic with consultants in particular? Who's benefiting from what I call COVID tailwind versus those that are struggling? Well, first of all, you know, I believe in community, not tribes, community. And because I've had a community in reality and virtually, you know, this, this wasn't even a hiccup for me because I'm used to dealing with people virtually. And the consultants who have done that, the experts, the speakers, the, the uh, people who are able to do this uh, really came through quite well. Uh, ironically, though, some people lowered their fees, which you shouldn't. You should actually raise your fees, if not at least keep them stable, because value is value. And the fact that the client doesn't have to fly people in or go through expenses, that's a, that's a benefit. In any case, those people have done well, and the best people, the best of the best, have done this. And I'm asked this question all the time, David, so I've become so, somewhat good at answering it. Uh, the best of the best call everyone they know and offer help. They don't talk about sales. They don't talk about projects. They offer, how can I be of help? And concurrently with that, they offer new services, new value in the marketplace. They do not hunker down. And one of my great beliefs, and I've been preaching this now for the last uh, five or six months, is that volatility and disruption are offensive weapons. They are not to be feared. You don't defend yourself. You use volatility and disruption to gain market share. And, you know, in fact, you know, when I wrote value-based fees and million-dollar consulting in the 90s, I disrupted the consulting profession, which was charging largely by time units. Uh, I'll stop there, but, but that's how I look at people who are succeeding more than those who are not. Delineate your definition of community versus tribe. To me, a tribe is exclusionary. Uh, a tribe worships around a totem. Uh, you must accept a very strict orthodoxy. 
they have tended to be very cruel toward other tribes and adversaries and so forth. Communities are inclusionary. And so therefore, you have a, a broad set of values, that is your ethical, but there is a lot of diversity within the community and they are very inclusionary. I'll tell you something that's fascinating. This, I don't mean this as a religious message. I mean, it's a historical fact. At the time of Christ's death, there were 12 Christians. There were 12 apostles. 300 years later, there were 30 million in a world of less than 200 million people. And the statisticians and the demographers have never really understood that. But the historians have pointed out that these communities, these Christian communities, provided help to each other, which was unheard of at the time. If somebody was disabled, somebody was sick, somebody needed help, the community provided it. And the communities were the same, no matter where you went in that ancient world. And consequently, this is what communities do today. They help each other. They provide support. Uh, you have a common set of values. And uh, these communities, both real and virtual, are absolutely necessary to get through the kind of turmoil we're going to continue to face. You know, one of the things I talk about is how do you get ready for the next one? Uh, because this kind of volatility is not isolated. You mentioned that you you switched your practice from wholesale dealing with you know large enterprises and enterprise buyers to more retail individual consultants, and in that process, you've built this community. Can you comment on some of the bigger challenges in doing that? What were some of the big obstacles in building a thriving community that that was sustainable? For me, there were practically none, and I'll tell you why. Once your mindset says this is where I want to go. And you're not afraid because, you know, a lot of people say, well, if I'm in the corporate marketplace, you know this, you know, I can get six figures and more for a given project. If I'm in the retail marketplace, I have to get a lot of individual checks from people. But, you know, in my community, the, my work with people ranges from free to $100,000 per person. Depends what they want to do. I have a broad set of offerings globally. And so it's easy to sustain the community because of the following fact. This is the key factor. You are assigned great value by others just by dint of bringing people together. Consequently, I've trademarked a phrase called the chain reaction of attraction. And when you bring attractors together who in turn attract other people, you create this hole that's 100,000 times greater than the sum of its parts. In my community, which consists of thousands of people globally, and these aren't, just, these aren't people who read my books. These are people who have somehow interacted in, in some more active way. None of them would know each other except for me. I am the common factor for 99.9% .9 of them. And there's tremendous value that accrues when you bring kindred spirits together. As long as I've known you, you've been a, a, a contrarian. And for our audience, this is going back, uh, I want to say close to a decade, uh, sitting in Alan Weiss's consulting college. I have a proposal out to the client that's based on a billable hour, which is I grew up in consulting and that's what you always did. And he's like, no, I, you know, this is a value-based fees. And, and you start to read the book and understand that approach. Alan, where did value-based fees come from? And how do you focus? Where do you pick your line of sight where, you know what, I'm going to go against the trend. I'm going to go against what everybody else is saying, doing, thinking. Okay. So those are really two different questions. So the first one is this. When I was fired uh, in 85 and I started going out on my own, there were 250,000 independent consultants in the country. I was traveling about 85% of the time. There was no technology, really. There was no internet. And I hated it. I hated all the travel, uh, even though it was easier to travel in a lot of respects. And uh, I hated corporate clients, you know, pointing the finger and telling me where to go. 
Uh, and I hated the fact that, that I had this rather this ethical conflict, which was the faster I solved the client problem, the more the better it was for the client, but the worse it was for me because I only made money the longer I stayed. And so I started to think about this, and I said, you know, nobody paid Picasso based on how long it took him to paint the picture. Nobody buys a Bentley and is charged based on how long it took to build the Bentley. So I said, I'm going to charge for the output and not the input. And when I started to run that by clients, especially Merck, which was my first huge major client, and they got it, then uh, I was in. And I started telling people, this is when I developed this list of benefits, don't make an investment decision every time you need me and so forth. And I started to talk about Merck doing it, then Ulan Packard did it, then Calgon did it, then the Federal Reserve did it. And you know, I had these lists of prestigious clients doing this, and there was no resistance anymore. People said, fine, one price, that's fine. But I had to educate them that my presence is not the value. The result is the value. What I do isn't the value. What I create is the value. And that worked. As far as the other, as far as the contrarianism was concerned, when I was fired, I said, how am I going to deal with a quarter million consultants that be different? What am I going to say? You know, a leadership requires commitment. Uh, and so quality control, quality circles was the big deal. And so I said, these are a waste of time. You know, these small tolerances, these people with, I don't know, green belts, black belts and quality. I said, it's all a waste of time. And I, I wrote an article like that for a magazine in Boston. And uh, the next month, the peasants came up the hill with pitchforks and torches. I wanted to burn the place down. These were all the human resource people, quality people. I apologized to the editor. I was so naive. And the editor said, hey, kid, I'll give you 50 bucks a, a month. I want a column every month. I said they hated it. He said they read it. And that's when I realized that you start to argue with everything you can that you can justify. I wrote 72 articles. I wrote for him for six years. And I just, just disagree with anything that was popular. And people listened. You brought up a great point beyond surviving this global pandemic, really thinking about planning and, and really developing a resilience of, of how do we tackle the next one? How do we get beyond the next one? What are you recommending to consultants, small business owners, you know, in your community of really developing the resilience for the next, not necessarily pandemic, but a black swan or something else that's going to disrupt their business? In March, when this thing got bad, the market really dove. I, I asked three separate high-end investment guys uh, who handle different parts of my investments. Okay, what do we do here? And each one of them said independently, look, if you have cash and you're not worried, do absolutely nothing because we were all expecting volatility. I said, you're expecting a pandemic? They said, no, no. But we knew that there would be volatility coming. We're prepared for it. We just didn't know it would be a microbe. And so what I'm telling consultants is this will happen again. It might not be a microbe. It might be a natural disaster. It could be a limited war. Uh, it could be anything. But what you have to do to prepare for this is you have to be highly aggressive. And that means you don't, you don't build defensive positions because you can't move in a defensive position. You know, the, the first stake in the ground came from the ancient Aztecs who would stake their ankle to the ground so they couldn't retreat. They'd win or they'd die. The problem was when they won, they couldn't pursue the enemy very well. And so I'm telling consultants, be consistently assertive, aggressive, understand you have to continue to offer new things, and you have to be highly innovative. And when the next volatility hits, you'll be well positioned. Do you believe in that vein, in that notion, that this pandemic is really an impetus for individuals, leaders to really think and lead differently about different parts of their organization? This pandemic harkens back to one of the oldest platitudes I know that happens to be true, and that is, it is not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. 
I sent out a message on Friday uh, because I did a huge live stream on Tuesday, free for anyone who wanted to come. I sent out a message Friday to 23 people I felt are sort of global leaders in these, this general field who, who I know in one degree or another. And of the 23, 22 of them responded within 48 hours on a weekend. And I wanted the trait they felt was most responsible for uh, success in these times. And 70% of the responses were involved around innovation and agility and so on. But the, the one in the next position was optimism. And to me, optimism is an enabler of those first three. So if you have an optimistic attitude, you get up each morning and say, this is a great day, great day for, to offer help, great day to, to try new things, you're going to be fine. If you get up each morning and say, another long, slow crawl through enemy territory, you're going to get killed. Well, I have to tell you, one of uh, one one of many things you've said over the years that I've admired is a fear of failure. I think your line is, you know, I've been thrown out of bigger offices than this one. Right? So um, talk about where does that come from? How have you seen leaders develop if they couldn't fail, you know, the courage to really think, lead, really engage the board to do some things differently? Talk about fear of failure and why and how it holds people back and what to do about it. Well, you know, the last book I published was earlier this year, Fearless Leadership. And my father was a paratrooper in the Second World War and the very first paratroop regiment ever formed. It was volunteer. And he jumped out of the airplanes with no reserve chute at 500 feet into Japanese guns in New Guinea. And I said to him once, he didn't like to talk about it. I said, how do you do that? And he says, well, you just assume it's, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. What else can you do? Well, I tell people now that you walk into a buyer's office, nobody's shooting at you. You know, there's like the cartoon sketch. There's no lever where there's a trap door, you're going to disappear. I've never been in a buyer's office where the buyer took money from me. And so <laughs> people need perspective. And they fear the ridiculous. They fear these these schemas in their heads. So you have to get a perspective that says, I am going to generalize my successes and I'm going to isolate my failures. If I don't get a sale, you simply say, on this day, at this time, with this person, uh, he or she did not buy. You don't say you're a lousy marketer. If you do get the sale, you don't say, boy, I got lucky. You say, I'm a great marketer. And by the way, this works very well with kids. You don't tell a kid, hey, you know, you, you missed a kick. You were, you were awkward on the field. You say, nobody could have made that kick. Don't worry about that. Kid gets a great score in a test. You don't tell the kid you got lucky. You tell the kid you're a scholar. And it's, it's how we engage in this self-talk, David, that's extremely important. Now, I had Marty Seligman as another one of my guests in, in one of the conventions I ran and, you know, he's the guy for positive psychology and positive self-talk. Learned optimism is his best book. Uh, and people just don't use enough positive self-talk. They look at the world as threatening. The world's full of opportunity, but it's a matter of what you tell yourself. You're a big proponent of constant learning, constant growth. I know you're a big advocate of reading. You read it extensively. And how are you learning? How are you growing and more importantly, can you shed some light into the evolution of consulting? Alan, what is consulting? What does that advisory work look like a decade from now? Well, a decade from now, I, I think we're moving through another age of advisory consulting. I, I think we're moving toward concierge consulting. And what I mean by that is this. Right now, you know, I, I'm urging people to move away from projects and toward advisory work because of what you said earlier. Wealth is discretionary time. So stop spending so much time. If you're an advisor, you can do that remotely. You can do it from home. And you offer us, as you're a sounding board, you offer advice. But instead of just sitting there like a lump, 
What I'm suggesting is what we're, where we're going to go is that we're going to suggest to our clients, listen, I can bring you together with the highest expertise in real estate or investment or health, government strategy or whatever it is uh, through my auspices. And, you know, I, I have brought James Carville and, and Marty Seligman and, and Dan Gilbert up at Harvard and Jonah Berger out at University of Pennsylvania. I've brought these people to these large sessions I run. Well, I think in a sort of a salon environment, you connect people like this and you go beyond just a trusted advisor. You become a concierge advisor. There's a great cachet. There's a great value in someone who can bring you the absolute top talent in an area that's very relevant to what you're doing, not only professionally, but personally. So uh, that's where I see consulting going. Your growth. Where's your growth coming from? What are you excited about in your personal, professional growth? I am highly spiritual. I mean, I'm not talking religion here. You know, I happen to be a a man of faith, but I'm very spiritual. I'm connected with the world around me, and I learn from it every day. You know, I watch the animals here on my property. Uh, I watch how people interact as I deal with them, either in person or remotely. Uh, And I learn lessons, and I see things. I'm constantly exploring. Uh, You know, I've been to over 60 countries. I hope to get back to that next year. I've got, I don't know, 5,000 books in my library across the hall here from where I'm sitting. Uh, and I read very eclectically. I read biography. I read science. I read science fiction. I read history. And the, the least thing I read is business. I try to take it as much as I can, but then I try to synergize it and synthesize it. And it's, it's sort of an alchemy to me where you can create something that didn't exist before because you're bringing together these disparate sources. So when I talk about the future of sales, you know, and I'm telling people now, St. Paul was the first viral marketer. You know, he'd go to Corinth or Rome or Antioch. And he'd preach and he'd tell, okay, go, now you go tell 10 people. Uh, so he was viral marketing back then. What I'm saying today is that you have to create these communities. You have to create this viral nature. And sales today is a matter of enabling the customer to buy. It's no longer a salesperson representing a product or a service and doling out information. Everybody has the information. So what are we doing to enable the customer to buy? So evangelism to me is the, going to be the very strongest factor in sales in the future. And companies that best promote evangelism are going to be the big winners. You and I talked about curve benders as the intersection of future of work, this idea of strategic relationships and nonlinear learning and growth. What do you believe nonlinear growth looks like? When I say that, what resonates with you? Uh, to me, it res- what resonates with me is concurrent learning. Uh, too much of our learning is sequential. In fact, we warehouse our kids, right? I mean, one of the things with this pandemic we had to learn is we had to change the school systems. We go chronologically. You're in first grade, second grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. It's ridiculous. You know, it's four years of college or it's five years of Ridiculous. But if you can learn concurrently uh, and it's not sequentially, whether you're whether it's academic or it's in business, you can synthesize much more quickly. And so why shouldn't you be learning social graces at the same time you're learning math or geography or anything else? Uh, in business, you know, why aren't you learning how to negotiate and how to evaluate as well as how to uh, commercialize products? So I think we waste a lot of time because we seem to think there's an arbitrary sequence to learning. You know, remember in college, they'd say, well, you need these prerequisites to do this. You don't need prerequisites to do it if you can handle what they want to give you. I know relationships are cornerstone of who you are and, and the practice and success you've built. Talk about the value of relationships in the future of work, future of consulting, future of business? 
I think the key to relationships, David, is that they have to be changed and modified and they have to grow with you. Relationships will always be important because establishing trust is important. That's why relationships are important. And that's a function of language. So, you know, language controls discussion and discussion controls relationships and relationships control business. I wrote a book with Marshall Goldsmith about two years ago called Life Storming. And uh, it was interesting writing with him. It was a fascinating experience. He's a very consensus kind of writer, and I'm a very confrontational kind of writer. So t- to meld our language, we'd have to get an editor who took a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And one of the points we f- we disagreed on on a friendly basis was I said that if, for people to grow, they have to keep changing their friends. And he said, well, I have lifelong friends from the time I was a child. And I said, well, okay, a couple of those maybe. But the point is you got to keep changing your friends, your relationships, your mentorships, your subscriptions, your memberships, the whole business. Because we, we all grow at different rates, and sometimes these things hold us back. So I, I believe that uh, relationships will be important, but not necessarily the same relationships. And I believe they're important because of trust. And I believe you build trust because of the, these great tools we have in language and the kind of nuances we can create with different people. When I talk about curve benders as people who profoundly change uh, the direction, if not destination of your future, beyond coaches, beyond great bosses and mentors. These people shape you to think, lead very differently. What do you believe it takes to be a curve bender in the lives of others? Fearlessness. Absolute fearlessness. And one of the great compliments I've been given is that people say, God, you're fearless. And I don't mean like my father jumping into enemy guns. I mean that I'm not afraid to fail. I mean, I'm not afraid of critique. Uh, you know, the higher you go up the scale, you become a thought leader, you become an icon, you own a niche. You know, if you look at, at Marshall or you look at uh, Seth Godin or you look at Marcus Buckingham or me or others who own these niches, uh, the fact is people shoot at you, you know, metaphorically. They take shots because you're on top. Uh, you, may, you have to make predictions in these positions. Not all predictions will be accurate, but that's okay. And so you need this fearlessness to lead people. And because, you know, we're operating in an age of, of great uh, discontinuity, of great ambiguity, and people aren't necessarily seeking destinations. What they're seeking is guidance. They're seeking trust. They're seeking somebody who could shine a light on things. Uh, and I think that's if you're fearless enough to say, just follow me, it'll be fine. Uh, I think you're in business. Uh, you inspire. So, so I'm grateful for your friendship, your insights, your, your guidance. I have to ask, what is your ridic- for our audience? Alan, as long as I've known him, has driven ridiculous cars. Where does your good taste in cars come from? And what are you doing for fun these days when we're all working from home? That's, that's a very interesting question because just I did two interviews today, yours and one this morning with an auto network uh, for auto dealers. And they asked me about my cars. So when I was young, I was poor and I, you know, probably overcompensating, I guess a psychologist would tell you, but I've always loved great cars. I think they're works of art and I love to, I love to drive. I love the experience of driving and control. <clears throat> so I've driven everything. I've driven, you know, Ferraris and Astons and so forth and so on. Right now in my garage, I have a, a, ni- a 2017 Rolls Dawn convertible. I have a, a 2020 Bentley GTC, which is a convertible, which is really my wife's car. We have a 2020 Bentayga, which is a Bentley SUV. And then I have a 2016 Corvette Z06. And I will not buy a newer Corvette because the new Corvettes do not have a stick shift. They're all automatic. And this is a seven-speed manual, which is 650 horsepower and weighs as much as a door on the rolls. And so that's my garage. In terms of what I do for kicks, 
you know, I love to just sit in, I belong to three cigar clubs up here, one in Manhattan. I, I like to sit either in my library or cigar club, have a great cigar, a glass of scotch and read. Uh, I build models. Uh, I have a huge Lionel train layout. I have another house, which I rent out about 10 minutes away. And I keep the carriage house. That's the deal. It's the leasing deal. And in the carriage house, I have a 40 by 40 Lionel train layout, you know, with over 100 cars and 20 engines and all this kind of every operating accessory from 60 years ago. Uh, and I go over there, you know, and sometimes I won't run the trains. I just do a little scenery, you know, for 45 minutes. And I collect things, you know. And so I have all of these interests. And my, I used to, David, work. I used to take off uh, Fridays. I'd work Monday through Thursday, even here at home. And take off Fridays. And I've changed that now. I take off every afternoon. So, you know, this interview is an exception, which I'm happy to do for you. But unless I'm talking to Australia or Japan, uh, you know, I, I'll start off at seven in the morning, but I, I'm generally done around noon. So, you know, that's my life these days. I, I can't imagine you, quote unquote, retiring. Right? So what, what is what is Alan's uh, world looks like in the next decade? Well, you know, I wrote this book, Three Score and More, and, and I said retirement is an artifact that, you know, no longer applies to anything. And so what I'm looking at is to continue to expand my horizons. You know, I'm, instead of just dealing with consultants now, I'm dealing with entrepreneurs and professional services providers to help them build a better life, a more prosperous life, their business and their personal life. Right now, I'm completing the third of four books I'm working on. I just wrote a book called Legacy which is about how you create legacy every day. It'll be out early next year. I did a second or third edition of the Consulting Bible. I'm finishing the third or fourth edition of Value-Based Fees, and then the sixth edition of Million Dollar Consulting. I'll start working on in January. Uh, and I'll write more books, and I'll pursue more things. Uh, I have good relationships with people. You know, I can sit down with my congressman and have lunch privately. I get interviewed on the radio all the time. Uh, you know, I can make a call and get things done. So I believe as you accrue this power and you, you gain these relationships, you need to use them for good. You know, you need to apply yourself for good. So I'm constantly looking for those things. I've been on a dozen boards right now. I'm the, I'm the president of the ballet company here. And of course, all arts groups are in big trouble. And so I'm applying my talents and galvanizing the board to see us through these tough times. And we just got a $100,000 grant yesterday from the state. And we're going to use it to create an outside stage. And we're going to put on the nutcracker for kids for Christmas there, which before we could not do because you can't bring a lot of people inside. So th those are the kinds of causes that I'm, I'm looking at. Uh, what's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and read some of your work? Go to alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. There are hundreds of free audio, video, text, checklists, everything. You have to buy a thing. You can subscribe to all my newsletters. Uh, I have a weekly podcast called The Uncomfortable Truth. It's free. You can get that there, too. So uh, my blog is also there. Uh, there's a cartoon every Friday. There's a video called Writing on the Wall once a month. So I would encourage people to do that. And uh, I, I hope you'll find something of interest for your needs. Uh, prolific writer, uh, reader, uh, coach, mentor. And uh, if there was a picture of a curve bender in, in any kind of a dictionary, Alan Weiss's picture would be there. Alan, thank you for being a guest on our Curve Benders podcast. David, thank you. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. You ask great questions and you're a great, great guy. I appreciate it.
if you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast with Alan Weiss. He is always brilliant, is always thoughtful. I've always enjoyed our time together. Three comments Alan made during our interview really resonated with me and has for a long time. Number one was this whole notion of a community, an inclusive, uh, highly diverse community to he- help one another versus a potentially an exclusive tribe. So my question of you is what are you doing to build a community? of like-minded people, of people who are struggling with potentially similar set of challenges or could benefit from similar set of opportunities and do not discount your ability to be a purveyor of relationships. What did he say? Some of your most valuable approaches to building communities, bringing like-minded people together. And I believe everybody can build a really strong community of like-minded folks. Number two, value-based fees. This one in particular has directly uh, impacted, elevated my uh, role, my career, my company, my business in the last two decades. So what did he say? Uh, charge for output versus input. Again, I think more and more uh, individuals in roles, certainly entrepreneurs, can shift uh, their business model to more value-based outcomes, value-based fees. And it'd be really interesting for you to think about kind of what you do and how you do it as the gig economy takes off as what I wrote in, in, in co-create the Hollywood talent model takes off. I think increasingly uh, charging for outcome output uh, is going to become more the norm. Last but not least, the pandemic as an impetus to think, rethink, reimagine, reinvent. What did he say? Get more aggressive. Really look at this as an opportunity uh, to uh, get more aggressive with new products, new services, new approaches to market. I'm a huge believer and I'm working with several clients on really thinking very differently about their business model uh, and and how can we manage the present while we invent the future. And that is, takes courage. It takes commitment. It takes a construct to really start thinking uh, very differently about uh, I'm writing a, a Forbes article that working from anywhere is here to stay. Uh, and and digital relationships matter more than ever before. And nonlinear growth. We don't learn anything else. We better learn that 2020 was year of the nonlinear growth. And how can that really continue to help us in our evolution in terms of our product, services, portfolio approach in how we show up? Don't forget, I turned these show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check them out in our blog at norgroup.com slash blog.
I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curve Benders podcast. I want to keep producing great content, most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurveBendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.